0: Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast for Real Life Church Pullman. We exist to help people know and become like Jesus. Hey, we are jumping into a new series. This is, it seems so weird that it's December and Christmas is around the corner because it just doesn't feel Christmassy when it's so warm and there's green grass everywhere. It seems kind of unusual to not have uh, any bits of snow really yet this year, and so It is, though. It is the Christmas season, and we are going to go into uh, kind of a fun Advent series, kind of leading up to the birth and celebration of Jesus. And so this season, we're kind of taking a different approach. We're talking about the idea that everybody likes to know where they're from, right? Right. And I think uh, probably all of us have done a little bit of uh, ancestry or family uh, lineage kind of research or someone in your family has, especially with the Ancestry.com and the other sites like that, just out of curiosity to kind of see like, hey, where, where are my people from? And it, it's nothing new to us since the beginning of time. People have cared deeply about where they came from, about who their people are. And part of that is because th- there's this sense that where you come from and who you came from, it tells you a little bit about who you are. And and it helps you understand about maybe why you are the way you are or where you came from or if you have some tendencies. And it's a fun thing to do. My grandpa wrote a family uh, history, uh, kind of his life story and his family history and traced the family back to the like 1600s or something through Bible records and spending time in Europe and going to different places. Pretty fascinating and fun stuff to read. Now, in the history of the world, there's probably no... Person whose lineage and family line has been more uh, researched, more studied, more maybe debated um, than Jesus. And so we're going to spend a few weeks kind of looking at what we call really the messy path that leads to the Messiah. When you think about the family lineage of Jesus and how we came to have the Messiah and where he came from and who he came from. It is a little bit uh, expected in some respects, and it's a little bit unexpected when we think about the different people that are in the lineage of Jesus. Now, we could go about this a couple of different ways. Uh, We could start with uh, really the way Matthew starts in his gospel. He starts off in the beginning of the gospel, and Matthew says, this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And then he goes into a really awesome list of names that are hard to pronounce, right? And I could start there, and I could start throwing up charts and graphs of all of the different ways that we could look at. I know, it's like, I promise that will not confuse you. Like, you just need to spend just a little bit of time with it. It'll all come to you, right? But here's the thing. If we start to unpack that stuff and kind of go, hey, let's compare and contrast, it's not that those are bad things to do by any means to study and dig into the... To the lineage uh, according to the genealogies. But in some respects, oftentimes I think it confuses people more than it helps people. And so we're going to take a little bit different approach when it comes to looking at the lineage of Jesus and where did he come from and who did he come from. And I really want to kind of key in specifically on that idea of who did he come from? Who did Jesus come from? And why does that matter so much? Because when we look throughout the Gospels in particular, uh, we see that people from all different walks of life, from all different ages, from all different kind of socioeconomic spots in the culture, all had an idea of who they thought uh, the Messiah, Jesus, was going to come from. And so I want to just take a look at that so that we can see for our own eyes and hear with our own ears how people responded when they experienced an encounter with Jesus. Like, what did they think? And then we'll kind of backtrack and unpack that. So we're going to be spending time in the book of Matthew. And it starts off with, uh, there's a story and one of the first examples where there's an account of a leader of a synagogue. So a church leader whose daughter has died. And this leader is desperate to plead with Jesus for help to somehow intervene in his daughter's death. And so Jesus responds to go to the house. It's a long journey and he gets sidetracked along the way, but eventually he even ends up at this synagogue leader's house. And when he's there, he sees a crowd full of people who are mourning and crying because this girl has died. And he goes into the house, or actually approaches the house at the beginning, and he tells everybody, there, hey, don't panic. Everything's going to be okay. She's just fallen asleep. And they actually respond by laughing at him and mocking him because they say, I, apparently you don't know what a dead girl looks like because she's gone. And they re- literally ridicule him for saying that she's fallen asleep. He walks into the house. He reaches to the girl's hand, it says in the gospel, and he takes her hand, and she stands up and and walks out alive with him. And the story of this miracle spreads like wildfire throughout the land. People start hearing about this amazing miracle that happened for this leader of the synagogue for his daughter. And then as Jesus leaves that house, there are some blind men he encounters. And that's gonna be our first little glimpse at who people think Jesus came from. Matthew nine twenty seven, It says, as Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him calling out, have mercy on us, son of David. And then we have another account later on in the gospel of Matthew. Uh, In this particular one, there is a uh, man who was possessed by a demon. He was also blind and couldn't speak. And some people mercifully bring him to Jesus to see if there's anything that he could do to help this man. Well, Jesus helps him and he gains his sight. And then the people watch on as not only this man sees for the first time, but begins to speak. It's a pretty overwhelming experience for the people that have known this man and carried him to Jesus. And Matthew 12, kind of recounts how they respond. It says, all the people were astonished and said, could this be the son of David? So, Later on, again, in the Gospel of Matthew, the disciples are traveling north of the Galilee region, the Sea of Galilee. So this is way north of Jerusalem, up in the kind of mountains and in low, uh, low hill country. And they're traveling up there. And this time, they encounter a person that's not an Israelite. This is a woman who's a Canaanite woman. So she's a Gentile, not a Jew. She did not grow up hearing the stories about who the God of the Israelites were. She grew up in a pagan culture with multiple gods, but she knew nothing of who God was. But her daughter had been demon-possessed and tormented, and she did what any good mom would do when your kid is suffering and miserable. You do anything you can to try and find a way for help. And she had heard stories about Jesus, and so she brings her daughter to Jesus and pleads with him for help. And, And here's what this Canaanite woman has to say in Matthew 15, 22, It says, a Canaanite woman from the vicinity came to him crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter's demon possessed and is suffering terribly. Now there's a different story. This time, this one happens down in Jericho. So we were way up north of the Galilee. Now uh, Jericho is now well uh, east of Jerusalem. Jericho is kind of uh, what you can think of as like the uh, Palm Springs retirement community of Jerusalem. Uh, and totally different crowd, uh, kind of the elite religious leaders, many of the priests and uh, religious leaders of the day had homes there and and so as they 're leaving Jericho, there is someone there, and it goes like this in matthew twenty verses twenty nine through thirty one it says as jesus is, as Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him and two blind men were sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. Well, the crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet, but they just shouted louder. Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. Then well into Jesus's life, near the end of his time on earth, there's a story of him famously entering Jerusalem on a donkey. We know it as the story of the triumphal entry. And in that story, now it's not just a synagogue leader or a a Gentile woman or a blind person. Now it's not just an individual or a couple of people calling out about who he is and where he came from. It's hundreds, if not thousands of people lining the streets Shouting these things out to him. In Matthew 21, verse 8, it says, A very loud a very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest heaven. Now Hosanna is not a word many of us really understand or know what it means. We're familiar with it probably mostly because we've sung it in a worship song or we've heard it in a church setting, um, but we don't really know what it means. It's not a word that translates easy to a clear English understanding, which is why it says Hosanna and not tried to translate, right? The, uh, probably a, a fair translation is something like Savior or save us. And so we're seeing... Literally hundreds, if not thousands of people in the city of Jerusalem line the streets and shouting out to, to Jesus as they see him, Savior, Son of David, save us, Son of David. These are the things people say when they see him. It carried on all the way to the temple court where Jesus arrives at the temple court. And now for the first time, we get an account of Something I think is just fascinating. People that are not grown ups, little people, kids, and how they respond. In Matthew 21 15, it says, But when the chief priests and teachers of the law saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the Son of David, they were indignant. Later on, Jesus is surrounded by a group of Pharisees. Remember, these are the scribes. These are the, uh, the religious uh, Bible teachers and interpreters. They, these, these were the experts in the scriptures. And he's surrounded by them. And he asks them, who do they think the Messiah is? Like, who do people say the Messiah is? Where do people say that he's gonna come from? In Matthew twenty two forty two, 42, it says, what do you think about the Messiah? Jesus is asking him, whose son is he? In other words, whose Uh, what family is he going to come from? And they say, the son of David. All throughout the gospel of Matthew, and you'll find as you go through the rest of the gospels, you'll see this occur over and over and over again. People think that the Messiah is the one that would come from the son of David. Now, it's pretty interesting. There's, there's a couple of really cool takeaways as we kind of look at that little adventure of who people think he's going to come from one that we see this cross section, whether it's young kids, whether it's Gentiles that didn't grow up knowing the stories of the God of the Israelites, whether it's a religious leader, whether it's the Pharisees that know and interpret and study the Bible, whether it's blind men that have never, never probably even had an opportunity to read or see or hear much of the text spoken or taught across the board, Men, women, children, people from all different walks of life, when they hear about who Jesus is, they they say with this anticipation, could it be? Could he actually be the son of David? Now, here's the thing that I think is really fascinating. All of these stories that we just talked about, all of these occurrences of people interacting with him, thinking that it could be the son of David, happen a thousand years after David's reign. I don't know about you. I don't know much about what happened a thousand years ago. Do you know anybody that was alive a thousand years ago? Do you know anything about their family story? Do you know anything about what they thought would happen to their inheritance? Do you know anything about even where someone lived a thousand years ago? Like we don't have stories like that. We, we, we don't know intimate details of things from a family that lived a thousand years ago. And so it just makes me question like how in the world, how in the world are we a thousand years deep after David's life and people are still longingly expectantly looking for the one that would come from his family line. Like they, they, they know it and look for it. Like it could happen any day. How's that even possible? And I I just want to say that like, in order to kind of dig that out a little bit, let's talk about who David is and a a little snapshot of what his life is like, because it's a pretty important thing that a thousand years deep, people still think the Messiah is going to be from his lineage, which means there's something pretty unique about this guy that his life and who would come from his family line is still hanging around a thousand years later made a heck of a mark. And so, in fact, if you do a little bit of research, you'll find that David is the most written about character in all of the Bible. He's the most developed character. There are more pages and words devoted to him and his story than any other person in the Bible except Jesus. Of all other characters in the history of history, no one is as developed and written about and told about as David. And I think there's a lot of reasons for that, but probably most of all is, is the fact that with David, God is introducing something new. He's, he's introducing a new value system different than that of the people. He's introducing a new type of leader, a new way to serve and guide and direct the people than what they were familiar with. And so I, I think also one of the things that God was doing with David's life is he was giving people hope like he had never given them hope before. And so let's look a little bit at David's story. Uh, First of all, David was not the first king of Israel. You may be familiar. That was Saul. And uh, Saul and David couldn't be much different. Uh, In every respect, uh, character, integrity, physical appearance, you name it. Like they were very, very different people. Saul was not uh, that great of a king. And eventually God spoke to the prophet Samuel, who was the man that was listening and speaking for God at the time and told Samuel, it's time for Israel to get their true king. And so he directs Samuel to go and find a man named Jesse in a town called Bethlehem. You've probably heard of that one especially this time of year. And he says to go find this man named Jesse in Bethlehem that he has many sons. And he says, from among his sons, you will find the true king of Israel. And so Samuel does just what he's instructed to do. He goes and finds Jesse. And you may be familiar with the story. Jesse brings out his sons and Samuel goes up to him. And he says, you know, he looks at the first guy and it's like tall, dark, and handsome, strong. He looks like a king. I mean, this is surely this must be the guy. And God says, no, that's not the guy. he gets to the next one. I mean, surely this must be the guy must be the guy. Nope, that's not the guy. This goes on for a minute. And then God sort of does this cool thing. In the middle of this little process, God interjects and gives Samuel a tip, a little bit of insider information that is really like a, it's kind of like a turning point statement there are some of these statements that, that you can read about God and what God says in history. This is one of the things that God says in history that is like, this is a benchmark kind of statement where, where he's making clear, it used to be like this. It's never gonna be that way again. It's always gonna be this way. Like it's this big game changer statement. So Samuel is looking through Jesse's sons to choose a king. God intervenes in 1 Samuel sixteen seven and says this, but the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things that people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. We've probably heard that before, some of you, or heard the concept before, and it's like it just sort of sounds like a nice thing to say. What you don't understand is that was an absolute game-changer thing for God to say. And so Samuel continues to go along with the... going through the sons of Jesse, trying to figure out which one of these is going to be the king. And it says that that Jesse had brought before him seven of his sons, which is pretty interesting to me. I think no coincidence because in the Bible, seven is a really important number. It represents completion. And it's as if God was actually allowing Samuel to go through this process so that he could recognize that like none of these seven, in other words, Like, the way that people choose kings is completely wrong. Like, none of your way works. Instead, we're going to do it a different way. And and so Samuel's like, "Ah, I'm out of sons here. Jesse calls his last son, who happens to be a young boy at the time, shepherding sheep in a field. And for the first time in the story, we see David come on the scene. And here comes this young boy, David, not even thought worthy of like being in the lineup as a possibility, this afterthought. And David comes in and God makes it clear to Samuel that that's my guy. And Samuel had to thought for the moment, like, I, you really mean what you said. You don't pick them by the way they look, right? Like, I, okay, I'm, I'm starting to put together what you mean. And so Samuel does something with David that, uh, it has been done throughout history for the priests of Israel. When they're appointed as a priest, they're anointed with oil. There's this uh, really holy ceremony. And, and Samuel does that ceremony anointing David as the true king of Israel. He does this in an unassuming house, in an unassuming room, in an unassuming town of Bethlehem. And here's the catch. David knew and Samuel knew and God knew, but nobody else knew. That's quite an interesting position to find yourself in. And so things progress from there. Turns out that David becomes a very, very special king. The stories of his life are so important they stood out above all the other kings that Israel's ever had. And, and, and they're preserved and kept not just because they were important stories, but I think it had a lot to do with the significance of David's humble beginning. God was rewriting for people the way he chooses a leader, the way he chooses a king, pointing people to a new way and the future where a new king would come also quite unexpected. So the cool thing about David is he's, he wasn't groomed to be a king. He wasn't a, a career politician. He didn't have all of the right looks or the, the right lingo. He was just a humble guy that was willing to serve and he was willing to wait on God. And, and as he's chosen by God, God continues to protect him and elevate him. And and the differences that show up between Saul and David are enormous. You could probably write pages and pages of all the ways they're different. And eventually, eventually, Saul comes to hate David and some people may go i wonder how did that ever come to be and it really started with david's first big event in his kind of public role in, in light of the people of Israel, so the Philistines were at war with the Israelites, and, and Goliath, who you're familiar with, was challenging their warriors, and, and, and no one was willing to fight him. David shows up, and he says, "Hey, why are we not fighting this guy? I'm willing to fight him." And Saul recommend, <clears throat> excuse me, Saul recommends that David wear armor and have shields and a sword. And, 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 and David, his response is to reject Saul's advice the king, and to go about it his way. And he makes it really publicly clear that, that the way he's going to go about this battle is by depending on God and God alone. That he actually has the, the, the crazy confidence that God's already won the fight before he even shows up. And he wins that battle against Goliath and so then from there he gains popularity and it later goes on in Samuel to say that that the women would sing songs about Saul like man Saul's really awesome but David he's way more awesomer and the songs would go on well that began to breed this jealousy and hatred in Saul to the point that it literally drove him mad trying to rid himself of this beloved David What's fascinating about David is even through this horrible time in his life when he's persecuted, when he's living on the run, when he's hiding, when he's fearing for his life, his character stays the same. He has this crazy audacity to actually believe that God is God and he's not. And we can sort of laugh about that on the inside because it's like, well, yeah, duh. And it's like, but it's not duh. People didn't live that way. People live like they sort of called the shots in their life. He'd been appointed and anointed by a prophet of God as the king. He knew he was the king, but he was like, I'm not going to be king until God tells me it's time for me to be king. And until then, he's got a guy. And I'm going to let God be the judge of that. I'm going to let God deal with God's business, not me deal with God's business. My job is to get up today and just follow the Lord. And he actually lived that way to the point where he even had opportunities to kill Saul and he didn't take those opportunities because he knew that God was God and he's not. Well, eventually Saul dies. And even then in his death, David mourns the death, who's really someone who is a bitter enemy of his, but he's mourning because this is a man who was a king for God's people. And in that, there's this reverence and respect and he mourns the loss of Saul, and, and then David goes on to grow in his leadership. And eventually, by God's grace and with God's help, the tribes of Israel are united. David becomes king over all of Israel. He sets up Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. And, and later into his life, there is this actual time of peace. And, and it gets to a spot where David is sort of sitting back, evaluating his life, kind of looking at how good God has been to him he hasn't been perfect. He's certainly made some mistakes, but in the midst of the scheme of his life, he's looking at how good God has been to him. And he starts to find himself thinking like, look at all I have. Look at how good God has been to me. Look at this palace. Look at this city. Look at the everything I've got. And here God has no house. And he has this idea, this dream to build God a house. And he goes to the prophet at the time, now Nathan, and he tells Nathan, I want to go and build God a house of cedar. And he gives him some ideas. And Nathan, just kind of off the cuff, not consulting God, just sort of looks at him and and says, sounds like a great idea. Go for it. Well, then God has a little conversation with Nathan. Nathan. And, and God has a conversation with Nathan. And in that conversation, uh, the first part of it, he essentially tells Nathan, like, I'm, I'm just curious. Could you go back and check the record books? I don't remember me ever asking for a house. I don't think that was something that was on my agenda. And so he tells Nathan to go back and talk to David. You need to reroute him because this is not what he needs to be focused on. He doesn't need to be building me a house. And then he goes on to tell him something else, which I think is pretty... Fascinating in uh, first or sorry, Second Samuel chapter seven, picking up in verse eleven. This is kind of the rest of the instruction that God gives to Nathan to tell David. Okay, so he says, "The Lord declares to you that the Lord Himself will establish a house for you." When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And man, here's the good stuff. Like this is, this is the meat and potatoes kind of stuff that have caused people to hang on to who's going to come from David for over a thousand years. Is because God comes to David and says, no, 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 no. your life, your story is not going to end with you doing something great for me. You're just a piece of the story that I'm telling. And I want people to always remember this promise I'm going to make you from your own flesh and blood. In other words, from your lineage, from your seed, from your family, one is going to come that is going to establish a house for me a permanent house for me and a kingdom that won't be just temporary, but it is going to be forever. And people latched onto that promise to the tune of hanging on to it with anticipation for a thousand years that from David and from his family line would come someone who would establish the reign of God forever. Right now here's the cool part. They're living expectantly, on the lookout, like, could it be? Can you imagine, you go back and you think about all those encounters that we read about in the beginning, people actually living like, could it be? Could, could this be the promised son of David? Could this be the one? Could he be the son of David? How many times had they wondered that? How many people had maybe caught their attention? They were longing for this humble king who would follow in the footsteps of David who would wait on God, who would let God be God, trust God's timing, trust God's plan. And and God did something amazing. He used all of David's life and his story to really help people be ready for the next king, to know what to look for, to have an idea of when and how and where and who he would come from. That king, as we know, is Jesus. What's really cool is where and when Jesus sort of let the cat out of the bag for his followers and particularly the leaders of the day that he actually was the son of David. What's interesting is in many of the accounts you read in the Gospels, he'll help somebody. Could it be the son of David? He heals them. What's the advice he gives them? Hey, don't tell anybody anything about this. Keep this between us just keep it quiet for now. It was like, it's not time. But here's a cool story that you're probably maybe have read or heard about some of you, but what you might not realize is just how deep Jesus was digging to reveal who he was and, and who he came from. This story shows up in the book of Matthew chapter 12. It's going to be in your notes. We'll look at it too. It goes like this. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath and his disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. Well, when the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. And he answered, haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that the priests on the Sabbath uh, duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath and yet are innocent? I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. So let's unpack this a little bit. This is one of those ones where you could read through it and sort of is like, so riddle me this. What exactly were you saying there? Like, the story starts, he's, they're walking through the grain fields, they're picking heads of grain, they're eating them on the Sabbath, which according to the law was like harvesting, working, and you're breaking the rules. You're not allowed to do that as a Jew. And and. And Jesus's response to them highlighting that is he points to a couple of stories. He points to a story about David and he points to a story about the priests. And essentially he points to him and says, hey, don't you remember when David, when he was on the run and hungry, he went into the temple, he ate the bread. It was, that was a big no-no. He wasn't supposed to do that, but he did. Do you remember when he did that? And they're like, okay, what's that have to do with the price of tea in China, right? Like, I have no idea what you're talking about. They knew. And then he goes on and says, well, what about the priests? The priests, they are allowed to work on the Sabbath. So they do their duties on the Sabbath. They work. And so you're saying that their work sort of uh, desecrates the temple because they're doing what they're not supposed to do. But they were just the priests were allowed to work on the Sabbath. And so he's highlighting these two stories. And, and he's doing some interesting stuff because he's picking up a story that shows up in David's life. In, in, uh for us, it's in 1 Samuel 21. And it's a story where in the life of David, David knew he was king. God knew he was king. Samuel knew he was king, but nobody else knew he was king yet. And so Jesus is aligning himself with David in that time in his life by using this example. He's saying to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law that knew the word of God, he's saying to them, do you not realize that, like David, I'm the true king. You just don't know it yet. And he's aligning them with Saul. He's saying, and you're just like Saul persecuting the one that God's appointed the king, but you don't even know he's king. He's like, it's playing out right before your eyes. And for us, we look at this and it's a little bit like unraveling a riddle. For them, it was like, oh man, you just slapped me in the face. And he goes on to talk about how, don't you understand that the, even the priest can work on the Sabbath? He's saying, like, he, he's equating himself a, a, with the ability to work on the Sabbath because he is one that is appointed to represent God to the people. He's saying, This, this really is who I am. You may not know it yet, but this is who I am. And what's interesting is very much like David we see Jesus acting in a way that is difficult for people to wrestle with and understand because it's like, how is it that you've been given this authority? How is it that you have the right and the power and, and you have the, the crown, but you're not demanding it. You're, you're not taking it. You're not raising up an army. You're, you're actually waiting for God to set the pieces in place and patiently become the ruler that God says you will become, the way that God says you will become it, it just doesn't line up with the way that they expected the Messiah to come. But for the faithful people that looked to the story of David, they could hear those similarities ring out and it made it easier to go like, this is what God had in mind because we remember David. Could this be his son? And Jesus just keeps pointing people to this new kind of kingdom that would pick up where David's kingdom left off, this kind of upside-down kingdom where the, the poor and the impoverished and the persecuted and the oppressed are the ones that are elevated. If you haven't read the um, Beatitudes in the beginning of Matthew 7 for a while, go back and read those again and think about what exactly Jesus is saying. Like he, he, he's he's proclaiming this new kind of kingdom. He's trying to help. Pave the way like do you understand what it's going to be like to be in this kingdom and the people you wouldn't expect to be excited about having a authoritarian king are really excited one who would reign with mercy and grace and justice so it helps you understand a little bit why when you read through the gospels people are going could this be could this be the son of david could he be from the line of David? The thing that really sticks out to me, and we're going to kind of wind down and have communion together here in a minute, but the thing that just really sticks out to me about this is that the way that the amount of anticipation that people lived with, that somehow little kids knew to sing Savior, Son of David, that somehow a Canaanite woman who didn't grow up knowing who God was knew that there was something special about the one that would be called the son of David. That, that blind men who were demon possessed, who were mute and couldn't speak, like somehow they knew there was something special about one that would be called the son of David. And so I just want to say, as we get ready to take communion together this morning, I just want to say that as we're going into this season of Advent and we've got Christmas coming up here at the end of the month and there's all kinds of things that we look forward to and anticipate, I just wonder, are we anticipating the birth of Jesus Are we anticipating and and excitedly looking forward to like we get to celebrate the one that came as the son of David? You think about the excitement and the energy and the joy and the awestruckness that people had when they recognized who Jesus really was. Like let's grab a hold of that and carry some of that with us as we kind of expectedly wait for the Messiah celebration to come at the end of this month. Thanks for checking out this message from Real Life. You can find out more about us by going to rlcpullman.com or by following us on Facebook or YouTube. Until next time, have a great week.